So what was the end of this dream? Suddenly, it was 25 years later. I was old, sitting in a red room. There was a midget in a red suit and a beautiful woman. The little man told me that my favorite gum was coming back into style, and didn't his cousin look exactly like Laura Palmer, which she did? What cousin? The beautiful woman. She's filled with secrets. Sometimes her arms bend back. Where she's from, the birds sing a pretty song, and there's always music in the air. The midget did a dance. Laura kissed me, and she whispered the name of the killer in my ear. Who was it? I don't remember. Welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 12, Peaks Chats. My name is Magellan, and they're here to break the code, solve the crime. It's Alan. Break the code, solve the crime. Now it's time to do the time. I just rhymed time with time. I I like my mimosa (laughs) with lime. (laughs) What's up, everybody? These weak arms are heavy. Mom's mimosa full of lime spaghetti. (laughs) Lime spaghetti. Lime spaghetti, good Yuck. How you doing? Hi, Magellan. I'm doing super well. Uh, I know, how do you answer that question? What, what's what's the what's the time? <laughs> I usually just I usually just say good. I guess good. It's, it's like not when, really a great question. It's like when people at work are like living the dream, huh? And you're like, no, Greg, no. Uh, <laughs> I can't stand that. I hate it. We have a no. I've said this on a podcast before. We have a no saying that question in our office rule. Never ever. That's a, that's a good rule. That's a good. You rule. can't say living the dream, huh? You're not allowed. Because no one is. And if you are, good for you. Not to say you can't be, but probably not. Magellan, we're here to talk about Twin Peaks, which is a television show about mysteries and friends and betrayal and funerals. Yeah. Uh, We watch two episodes of Cult Classic TV shows every week. This week, we watched two episodes of Twin Peaks, as a matter of fact. First was season one, episode three. Yeah, I guess we can go with that, right? Because the pilot is the pilot. Rest in pain. And then season one, episode four, The One-Armed Man. This first episode, Rest in Pain, was directed by Tina Rathborn and written by Harley Payton. It aired on April 26th, 1990. Alan, what happened in Rest in Pain? John, in this episode, Cooper meets with Audrey, who confesses to leaving him the note about One-Eyed Jacks. Cooper tells Truman he can't remember who the killer was in his dream, but insists that the dream is a code to solving the crime. What's the line? Crack the code, solve the crime that he says over and over again? Well, I have. So I have this clip. One of my favorite moments of the episode. Uh, The reason I put it in. That's the reason I put it in uh, what I called you today. Mm -hmm. But uh, Truman and Lucy show up and Truman's like, who killed Laura Palmer? You called me last night. And Cooper's like, chill out, man. It's okay. Let me tell you about this dream I had. Uh, And then they have this exchange. Harry, let me tell you about the dream I had last night. To bed. No. You were there. Lucy, so were you. Harry, 
My dream is a code waiting to be broken. Break the code, solve the crime. Break the code, solve the crime. God bless Lucy. Yeah, Lucy's the audience uh, stand in there, which is really great. This must be the key to everything. I, I, uh, we can talk about this more in the second episode when we see Lucy watching Invitation to Love, but I think they're kind of trying to position Lucy as, as a bit of a parody of like the fan base that's starting to develop. Maybe they're writing this way too far out from it airing for that to be the case, but it's fun to look at her that way. I, I think you can definitely, even this early on, read her as like, the person who who wants to crack the, the code, like in any mystery story, you have the person who's like, I think if I put like the red twine person, right, without being like full on Pepe Sylvia, she's just like, I think I get this. And she totally doesn't get it. But but God bless right. her. We're going to take her along with us. Yeah. Um. So what did you think of this episode overall? Rest in pain. I actually loved it. I looked at some reviews um, right beforehand uh, from IMDb, actually. And a lot of people were like, this is a filler episode. This is like character stuff and folks who know me know i love character developing episodes of shows um very characterful very engaging throughout like i just keep being floored by how many memorable and and potent moments there are in this season of television like just between all the funeral stuff and all of the build-up to that funeral i feel like this episode actually successfully pumped the brakes and reminded us that this is a story about a bunch of people and not just somebody's death, even though the episode center is around literally the funeral of that dead person. Right. Um, and I, yeah, I loved it for that. I thought it was just, it was, it was incredibly entertaining. What about you? Yeah, there were, uh, I'll, I'll end up playing a lot of these clips, but there were a few moments throughout the episode where characters had just really great monologues. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really felt like this was an episode that was written for the actors which I can see why people would call that filler um, if that's not really what you're interested in. But uh, I I loved it. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was really great because there are so many characters who get a full minute to just shine as who they are, um, which is pretty cool. It really stinks that the writer of this episode, Harley Payton, he uh, went to Uh-oh. the same college as you, Magellan. Um, oh. Okay, well, that's actually good. I thought you were going to say something worse. No, he went to yeah, he went to your college. So yeah, sorry to hear it. That's great. Yeah, he wrote twelve episodes of Twin Peaks. Um, I don't know much else about what he's worked on, but yeah, it it feels like a stronger script. It feels like less of a build up script, and now we're just in Twin Peaks. Now we're with these characters. We know what their deals are. Like we're just we're we're cooking now. You know. Yeah, definitely. Um, but where do we want to start tackling this one? Well, we can start with just what's kind of, I, I think the episode really happens in three stages. There's kind of like checking in on the mystery and some of the, you know, loose ends that were left by the previous episode. Then there's everything in and around the funeral. And then there's kind of a bunch of other stuff at the end of the episode. So I think we can kind of consider those like three acts um, one by one. So if we start at the beginning we can talk about just what's going on with our cop squad. And we, of course, begin the episode by joining Cooper at breakfast. Um, And unfortunately, the show has another moment where it's like, Audrey's really hot. And she and Cooper really want to be together. I like that your your dumb character, horny man voice has evolved a little bit. There's a little nuance to it now. (laughs) I respect it. Um. But I do, I do end up enjoying 
Audrey's motivation for helping. Uh, well, I don't necessarily enjoy her motivation for helping, but I enjoy that one of her deals is like, I'm self-appointing myself the like, you know, deputy of this case. And I'm just going to kind of do that on my own time. Uh, and Cooper, uh, Cooper discovers that in this moment where he gets Audrey to write her name on a piece of paper. And she's like, sure, I'll write my name on a piece Hell of paper. Hell yeah. I love writing my name. <laughs> and he's like, aha, your handwriting matches the note that you slipped under my door. Um, There's but, a lot of good moments yeah. in this episode. And uh, I think in the second one too, where Cooper just makes the right leap of logic. It's so satisfying watching this man be like smarter than everyone else. Um, there's that moment later yeah. in this one where they're interrogating Leo and he's like, what are you going to read my rap sheet? And he's like, I memorized it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i have that clip for later um he's just so like competent without being annoying which i think is a fantastic parallel uh to the man of the hour miguel ferrer as albert rosenfield um mm -hmm. who is it gets his full introduction in this episode after being briefly teased last time um he has just the worst not only as a parallel to cooper um who's much less competent and or, or competent in a different way i mean the guy like does get the most data out of this case but yeah. in such a calculating and, and unempathetic way that it almost feels like the show is telling us like is that worth it it's setting up some great parallels between albert and cooper that uh i really liked this is how he talks to doc hayward and to uh ben horn and uh i think that's everybody who's in the room with him but at least the two of them yeah you're the most cold-blooded man i've ever seen i've hayward. never in my life met a man with so little regard for human frailty have you no compassion i've got compassion running out of my nose pal i'm the sultan of sentiment dr hayward i have traveled thousands of miles and apparently several centuries to this forgotten sinkhole in order to perform a series of tests now i do not ask you to understand these tests i'm not a cruel man i just ask you to get the hell out of my way so that i can finish my work is that clear to conduct laura palmer's body to the cemetery if you think for one minute we're going to leave here without her you're out of your mind all right all right all right all right and uh you know albert has a point mm -hmm. in this scene which i think is is worth talking about because he he says at one point listen you can have a funeral at any time a funeral is just sort of like this uh arbitrary thing of, it's a okay t yeah it's a ritual today is the day that we're putting her in the ground you don't even necessarily need a body to have a funeral i mean you do but you could just put a box in the ground and fundamentally it's the same thing um and he's saying I need to do these tests to figure out who killed her and how she was killed so that we can stop this from happening again. It's just that he's a complete jackass. Yeah, big time. But he's right. I think he's right in, mm. in this moment. Hmm. Well, I think, yeah, there are, there are intrusive uh, things that he's going to do to investigate. I mean, he wants to like drill into her forehead at one point. Um, I don't fully understand what the intent was there, like what he's trying to find, but even with just the body that they give him after, or like what he got from before the funeral, he gets so much information and it's like, I guess you can argue like, would they have found the killer out a lot faster and found this information faster if they just let Albert have the body? But then you get into this cool moral question of like, well, we would have gotten it, but that we wouldn't have been able to have a, a proper funeral with a body going down. Like, But also he only got that information because they were going to take her out of the morgue at that moment. And Cooper steps in and he 
forces a compromise. Yeah. Where he says, get the t- your test done before noon so we can have the funeral later in the day. So it he wouldn't have even been able to get that information if they had if they had had their way, if Doc Hayward had had his way and Ben Horn had had his way. No, and, uh, Ben Horn having his way. Never good. <laughs> never good. And, uh, you know, Doc Hayward, as much of an angel man as he is, he's not acknowledging the fact that, like, he's being affected by it being Laura. If it was somebody else, he would be on Albert's side in this, I think. Um, yeah, there there are moments yeah. uh, I want to talk about the funeral, obviously, but like where I just feel like all the men in this series have everyone, everyone, not only the men have this like profound religious respect for Laura, even before her death and for her body and for her beauty that really discomforts me. And it's obviously supposed to, but mm-hmm. it just feels weird the way that we're like, we can't touch her. Don't mess with her. She's perfect the way she is. She died sealed up, wrapped in beautiful plastic. Don't move an inch of her hair. And it's Mm -hmm. like, guys, like she was murdered and probably, and we know that she was involved in some serious drug stuff. Like an investigation needs to happen if the family wants closure. I mean, the family, like when you see me at the funeral later, the Palmers are not doing well. And I think ultimately what, you know, you can tell me what the, the hand of the show is saying, which is that Albert is being a jackass and the truth is he's handling it terribly. I think he could compromise himself if he knew how to be an adult and stop saying horrible things about people from Twin Peaks, like yeah. how they're half wits or whatever other like ableist things he says about them and, and Andy in particular. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, when um, Truman punches him in the face at the end of that scene that you just played a clip from, it feels like, hell yeah, like, let's go, Truman. And I, and I have that moment, too, right here. Oh, please. Please, Cooper. I do not suffer fools gladly and fools with badges never. I want no interference from this hulking boob. Is that clear? I've had just about enough of your insults. Oh, yeah. Well, I've had about enough of uh, morons and halfwits, dolts, dunces, dullards, and dumbbells. And you, chowderhead yokel, you blithering hayseed, you've had enough of me? Yes, I have. It's, it's, I mean, it's very, again, it's very satisfying in that moment. You're like, heck yeah. But I think the show, and and I think this is actually present in a lot of David Lynch's work, but it's this sort of reverence for the Northwest, for small towns, for wholesome people who are down, who are salt of the earth uh, types. Mm -hmm. And this, this episode, I mean, I think this is like the main thing I want to talk about in this episode is the way that it disassembles that myth while also reinforcing it in a way. Because right. on one hand, we get we get that great moment. And a lot of the investigation is uh, Cooper looking inside and going, wait a minute, maybe Twin Peaks isn't this like a nice, beautiful, peaceful hamlet with pancakes and coffee that I always thought about. Maybe there is like a darkness that's that's stitching this together. Because literally mm. in the same episode, we root for Truman punching a guy in the face. And then we're introduced to the Bookhouse Boys. I think the show is trying to say something about like, maybe you don't have this like good old fashioned hometown without mm-hmm. something under it. Yeah. And, and I think that's the sort of those, the three acts of the episode really take us along that journey of, of looking under the hood of that particular myth, because here in the first act, um, Albert's painted as, as a jerk. Uh, and like you're saying, he gets punched and we're like, heck yeah, that's great. And then Cooper dresses him down and tells him off later. And I can play that speech in a moment. Yeah. Um, and then when we get to the funeral, 
things start to break down and fall apart. And Bobby has this incredible monologue where he yeah. essentially says to everybody, like, stop pretending like you're remembering Laura or doing something she would have liked. It, it, this is all fake. This is, you know, we are the people who killed her. It's mm-hmm. our fault that she died because she was having issues and we preferred to have the sort of like surface level image of a nice town as opposed to doing something about the real problems. And then, yeah, we get to the bookhouse boys and and we see the sort of darker underbelly of what the cops do. So, so yeah, I, I think, and I think honestly what's motivating Doc Hayward not wanting Albert to do his tests is Doc Hayward doesn't want to learn the truth, you know? Yeah, he wants to keep the, maintain the myth. Right. Let's just get this girl in the ground as fast as possible. Put it Let's behind just, us. Put it behind us. She's going to be a prom photo on the mantle for the rest of our lives. And we can be happy with that because that's a nice little picture. But it's not the reality. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants to confront the reality of, of Laura's life and, and what led to her death. And and we get to see this from Cooper's perspective. He's one of our audience sub- substitutes in a way. And he's so mad at Albert after this. Mm-hmm. I mean, Albert like threatens to sue. He's trying legitimately to uh, sue or, or throw the book at Harry Truman or later. And Cooper is like fully committed to the Twin Peaks myth at this point. He's very much bought in. Um, I mean, literally, there is a scene later where he talks to Diane. I don't know if you have that clip. Yeah, I've got that whole clip. I can just play that speech right now. Yeah. Albert, I hope you can hear me. I have only been in Twin Peaks a short time, but in that time I have seen decency, honor, and dignity. Murder is not a faceless event here. It is not a statistic to be tallied up at the end of the day. Laura Palmer's death has affected each and every man, woman, and child because life has meaning here, every life. That's a way of living I thought had vanished from the earth, but it hasn't, Albert. It's right here in Twin Peaks. Sounds like you've been snacking on some of the local mushrooms. Hmm. With your behavior towards these good people, consider yourself lucky I do not file a report of my own that could bury you in a building so deep in Washington you'd never see the sun. Diane, is 12.27 p.m. I'd like you to look into my pension plan options regarding outside real estate investment. I may look into purchasing a piece of property at what I assume will be a very reasonable price. It's, yeah, there it is. The Cooper is the ultimate investment. I want to live here. I don't want even want right. to just, I don't want to be a visitor anymore. I want to be a member of this town. Um, yeah. And I, I I truly do think that the show wants us to feel like that as well. I mean, like, think about how much of the Twin Peaks fandom is like, oh, I wish it was a real place. And I, or like, I wish I could go there um, and hang out with all these characters. Like, well, it, does this show want us to do that? It's because like we were saying, this episode is is a subversion and a deconstruction of that. I, I guess I mean more up to this point and from the perspective of Cooper, yeah. most definitely. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, by by the end of this episode, you're to understand I mean, Truman spells it out like you don't have a town like this without people doing some sketchy things uh, on the fringes of it. It simply doesn't exist. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I think there's a couple of other things uh, before we get to the actual funeral, though. Uh, I want to briefly touch on the fact that we did see Invitation to Love, finally. Um, <laughs> f- folks who are who've heard of Twin Peaks or, or, or know about it know that there is a show within a show called Invitation to Love. Um, don't need to dig too much into what happens in it, but there's people with, with uh, actresses playing two people. Um, which we meet Maddie Ferguson this episode. And if you didn't realize that that was Cheryl Lee, a.k.a. the woman playing Laura Palmer, then they did a good job. She looks very different, by the way. Uh, I yeah. think they did a good job of making her, of Cheryl Lee looking not at all like Laura here. They don't just put yeah, the, the hair. Yeah, the hair does a lot of work there. And the glasses. And the glass, the big glasses, yeah. And and like seeing people react to her is great. There's an amazing moment in the second episode with James that I was like really impressed by. Um but yeah, invitation to love, just something to keep a, keep track of. It's not like, you know, this is the key to everything. You're not going to solve the show by by paying attention to invitation to love, but it's really cool. And a lot of shows have taken that idea of a show within a show. Obviously, for the mm-hmm. sake of like editing and pacing, it's a hard thing to implement. But like, I always remember the Max Payne games having, and like a lot of the games from that that game studio having uh, like a TV in the background throughout the levels that has like a show on, and it like does the same thing. So. Mm-hmm. Again, clearly a lot of people like this idea, this conceit, and wanted to do things like it. It's kind of an odd, like, I don't really get the point of Invitation to Love, except to just be funny and to say, hey, we're doing soap opera stuff in our show, too. I guess it's to make clear that, to the audience, that Twin Peaks is meant to be a send-up of soap operas, Yeah. Um, so that when you see the mill stuff going on you're like oh okay this is stupid (laughs) this is not this doesn't matter um and i know that because of invitation to love or like when laura's double shows up or maybe it's like hey look at these things that look so ridiculous in a soap opera we're gonna take them into this semi-grounded world of twin peaks yeah and just see what they do to the these real people like it, it gen, it genuinely is kind of creepy that Maddie looks so much like Laura. Yeah, it's uncanny. It's, un, it's it's unsettling. Yeah. Uh, and I think we're supposed to question that exactly like everybody else does. Like, wait, this feels weird. We've been seeing so many photos of Laura. We saw her body in a previous scene. Like her image is burned into our heads. It's like pop culture icon. And mm. to see Charlie in this in this black wig or whatever, you're like, hold on, no. I can't trust you that this is a different character. Like you got to be doing something here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll, we'll keep a pin in that. And I think people should, should, uh, will I will appreciate Maddie's uh, whole arc here. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the connection with that to imitation to love, I think does amount to, Hey, we know that's that soap operas exist and we want to make it clear that we're not just doing your, this ain't your daddy's soap opera. Right. Um, this is right. something different. This is some, a different sort of like genre of television within that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, let's get to the funeral. Um, so we yeah. get some some various people's like reactions to it. Uh, my favorite, of course, being Bobby and his father, Major Briggs, um, yeah. chatting just briefly before the funeral about how like why do we ha- you know Bobby's like frustrated that he has to go there and he's not happy about it and and Major Briggs is like well people respect bodies and you know there is benefit and rituals and all that stuff. Yeah, Major Briggs has this really great monologue where he tries to connect with Bobby, which is one of the examples of like the great monologues of this episode, if I could mm-hmm. just play that real quick. But we have a responsibility to the dead, Robert. Responsibility is the linchpin of our society. Each man responsible for his own actions, each action contributing to the greater good. What's the good? 
good of putting someone in the ground. That's man's way of achieving closure. And ceremony begins understanding and the will to carry on without those we must leave behind. Robert, in your life, you must learn, you will learn, to carry on without them. Great. I realize you experience an ongoing disinclination to enter fully into meaningful exchange. This leads to stalemate. A desire on my part to force certain wisdom upon you. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's the best course available. Look, son, don't be afraid. We'll all be there together. Uh, afraid of what? Well, the funeral. I'm not afraid of any damn funeral. Afraid? I can hardly wait. Afraid? I'm gonna turn it upside down! Everybody ready? I love Betty. Betty. I love Betty Briggs right there because she's like <laughs> fully aware that her husband and her son are like shouting at each other, and she's like, "Okay, we have to pretend to be happy again." <laughs> Such a great portrayal of the disconnects between a parent and their kid, where Major Briggs knows what it's like to be the parent of a teenager who, like, you know, he has wisdom, and Bobby doesn't want to accept it, but he also is missing the point too. Yeah. Bobby doesn't just have jitters because there's a funeral. Um, maybe that's part of it. And and Bobby, you know, this show being a show about how we process grief, the way that he's processing his grief is through unbridled rage. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also upset about something else that, that major Briggs doesn't understand yet. Um, so I thought that that was a really great scene, well acted by both of them, even though Bobby goes kind of Nick Cage in, in that moment, to use our friend Jim's words. Yeah, right. Um, but but yeah, it's just a really honest portrayal of, of what it's like for these two people to just sort of miss each other in, in this conversation. And it's it's believable. I, I, I listened back to, um, I don't know if it's hit the Patreon at this point, Magellan, but the uh the peaks chats uh the pre-peaks chats recording that we did the 2014 one it's up there and listening to that when i was talking about the pilot and i was like this bobby briggs scene at the beginning when he's interrogated is so funny like he just he's so loud and he's all yelly and like yeah there's a comedy to it it is kind of silly but like the dude's girlfriend died (laughs) i would be yelling i would absolutely and i think at that time you know i hadn't not that like now I've experienced my girlfriend dying and I can relate, but like I've experienced sure. more life since then. And I can understand why somebody mm-hmm. would raise their voice when somebody's like, did you kill your girlfriend? <laughs> like, I understand that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really love this. And I can't say enough about uh, about Major Briggs. He's just so he's like, I, I wrote in my notes like he's kind of too smart for his son. Like Bobby yes. is just too, <laughs> he's too young, too naive to understand that he has like one of the best dads. Uh at just very lovable, very empathetic, and yet is like just kind of talking over his son a little bit. And um, I, I think his problem is that he cares a little bit more about crafting this perfect, perfect nugget of wisdom than he does about just say like a person, like, yeah, just, saying speaking to Bobby in a way that they can actually speak to each other. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a very frustrating relationship, but but a good one uh, mm-hmm. to watch in terms of entertainment. Um, and so. 
The other pre-funeral scene that I really liked was obviously Nadine and Ed. Yeah, another uh, frustrating relationship to watch. <laughs> big time, big time. Oh, so man, Nadine- it starts, the scene starts with this moment where Nadine runs up to Ed, and this is the two-line exchange that they have. This is Nadine running up. Love me. You bet. Like, Ed, come on, man. You bet. You bet. Sure. You bet. I mean, he doesn't. He's he's not. He can't lie. He's bad at lying. Right. But that stinks. And then she tells him this origin story, which is basically for us to view. I don't really know why she's talking about it to him. She's just like, you know, Ed, I always thought about you when I saw you in high school with that girl, Norma, and you guys uh, were another, such a good couple. Yeah. Another one of these beautiful monologues. Um, yeah. In high school, I used to watch Norma and you at those football games. She was so pretty. You made such a handsome couple. But I knew. (laughs) Yeah. I was just a little nobody. Uh, that's the part where you can rewind the tape and see my heartbreak. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, I mean, we were complaining last episode about, you know, how they're just not giving Nadine the interiority that we want. And then suddenly there's this burst of all of her insecurity at once. And it was, it was a really powerful moment, I thought. And to see, to watch... <laughs> watch Ed's eyes and see him tearing up at it and see all of the thoughts swirling in his head. Um, yeah. It, it, uh, it took this character who was all about silent drape runners and, and bending her bow flex or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> and she's a fully rounded person now. Yeah. I, I, I hope that the show can do better by her. Um, I know the answer to that question. And uh, I like Nate. I still love Nadine. I think she's very yeah. much like she's the character it's supposed to care about and love here. It, the, it, the series does a great job with like showing you people who engage in infidelity and letting you still empathize with their original partners. Um, and, and with them, too. And with, with, them, every, with, with everybody, everybody involved. Yeah. Because something that Cooper talks about, like his conflict with Albert, is that like everybody deserves empathy. Even these people from this hick town that you're not used to, that you're, you know, judging are still good people with good morals and everything. And sometimes it's better than yours. And and like the constant reminder that like, yes, even Nadine is a good person and, and she deserves love, too. And so is Ed uh, is really uh-huh. great. Um, there was a weird detail here, which is that. Uh, Ed talks about how they're going to have James over. He comes over. He comes over just to tell them he's not going to the funeral. <laughs> I'm not going. Okay. Don't go. She's your, and, she, and you, she's goes. your friend. And then he goes. Like Such okay. a such a teenager thing to do. Yeah, exactly. It's it's pretty in line. But um, we get to the funeral and one of the most memorable oh, scenes the we- You're going to say show. the weird detail. Was that the weird detail or was the weird detail that Nadine didn't know who James was? It was both. Thank you. Yeah. Why does Nadine know who James is? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. She might be forgetful, honestly, because it happens. Yeah, I, I guess so. But uh, at the funeral itself, yeah, again, one of the most memorable scenes from this whole dang show, because mm-hmm. if have you ever been to like a really sacred place or a really like 
quiet moment and somebody just rips a fart what if somebody like pooped their pants at <laughs> or something like that and everyone was just watching and crying and freaking out and they didn't know what to do about it that's basically what the vibe here is so yeah. laura's being interred in her grave and the the priest is reading and it's already uncomfortable because the priest is like he starts getting personal <laughs> with, <laughs> with everyone he's like oh she was so beautiful because even the priest has to say it and yeah. uh she was so amazing and she always told me i talk too much so i'm not going to talk anymore but <laughs> i loved her he says i loved her which like it's a, it, i've heard priests say it it's not that weird but it's coming off weird and yeah, she, and and he does the whole like I taught her in Sunday school. Everybody needs to inform us what their connection to Laura Palmer here's was. Here's how I knew Laura. Uh, yeah. Johnny, who was convinced to go by Doctor Jacoby, uh, mm-hmm. takes off of his his problematic Native Native American address mm-hmm. and uh, yells "Amen" over and over again. Uh, mm-hmm. Which Bobby then? Uh, yeah, I have takes, the Bobby rant right here. Yes. Amen. Amazing screen. Yeah, this is just Bobby fully Nick Cage mode now. What are you looking at? What are you waiting for? You make me sick. You damn hypocrites make me sick! Everybody knew she was in trouble. But we didn't do anything. All you good people... You want to know who killed Laura? You did! We all did. And praying words aren't going to bring her back, man, so save your prayers. She would have laughed at them anyway. James is there, and so it becomes this, like, slow motion fight scene thing. Yeah. Have all the old men trying to pull her back. That's enough, Bobby. That's enough. Why did you keep the slow motion voices, guys? <laughs> I thought it'd be funny. No, I mean, why, did they, why did they in the show keep it? I mean, <laughs> oh, I I think it is. I thought it was a really cool effect. Um, that like they're overlapping this audio that's not from the shot but then there's the slow motion audio that is from the shot yeah and it just creates this it it adds to the feeling that bobby's monologue uh has which is this is the half point of the episode or the three quarters mark and the whole tone is flipping upside down as soon as he says amen the whole tone of the episode flips because Prior to this point, there was this sort of quiet reverence and Cooper's monologue about these great people. And Bobby's monologue is a direct response mm-hmm. where he says, that's BS. Here's how it really is. And the rest of the episode, I think, is sort of fallout from from the tone of, of what he sets there. And I just thought that was really cool cinematography, post-production work to give it this dreamy, upsetting feeling. Um Coupled with right after it, Leland Palmer jumps into the grave himself. Oh, gosh. And that is just a lot. Um, I figure you have a clip from that, right? Yes, I I have that too. Um, Leland is on the coffin, and then Sarah's leaning over the grave, and she says, The whole thing is gone. Hey, (laughs) Laura. 
Forest theme. Don't ruin this, too! <laughs> and the machine is like broken, so oh. it's going up and down. And the sound design work there is absolutely unparalleled. The like creaking yeah. of the, and it's so annoying. The but fun, funnily frustrating that the next scene is Shelley like jokingly talking about this scene to some old men mm-hmm. at the at the double R. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah. oh my god! And then the thing was creaking, and I'm like, I was just there. It sucked. <laughs> Don't make fun of them. <laughs> yeah, and it's it just another example of a character processing grief in a very particular way. Like that, Shelley doesn't have a more mature response right now because she's a kid, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so she's gonna joke about it because it was really disturbing. <laughs> right. It's imagine witnessing that in real life, and just how terrifying of a moment that is. Yeah, you have to giggle. You have to laugh about it. Yeah, and. But- Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to pivot to talk about Bobby. Yeah, let's do that. Bobby's right. We are all hypocrites, and we did all kill yeah. Laura Palmer. Like that's mm-hmm. the he he solved it faster than Trooper Trooper. Oh my God, Cooper and Truman <laughs> Trooper. I found I found my ship name. Um, then faster than Cooper or Truman could solve it is it's not a single entity. It's a system that did it, which is like that's what yeah. it always is in these shows, right? It's not like. We find the one person, we find out that there's corruption underneath and, and it goes all the way down. But that sets the tone for the back third of this episode, which is yeah. like, okay, well, what is it? What does it mean for a whole town to be complicit in something like that? Right. And uh, this is the moment where the series goes from like quirky, uh, mystery, fun time, donuts and coffee show to like a pretty dark dissemination of like what it, living in a small town is actually like in the north in, in this area. Uh, mm-hmm. The darkness in the woods, as Truman says later. Um, so Truman yeah. asks uh, Cooper, and he brings Hawk with him to go to uh, a diner. And he asks Cooper if he wants some Huckleberry pie. And uh, if you could just play this this monologue, this is probably my favorite monologue of the entire episode from Truman to yeah. the gang. So this is like, I'm, this script is out of control. This is like incredible one minute monologue, like number five or six yeah. at this point. You could this um, one you could teach in school. Yeah, there. If you're if you're out there trying to audition for something, you can find a character who fits you somewhere in yeah, this script. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is Truman. So it starts with Cooper eating his pie. Mm. <laughs> this must be where pies go when they die. Great, great line. Mm. Okay, Harry. Would you please tell me why you really called me in here, Cooper? You're gonna have to go along with me on this, even if it sounds a little weird. I'm with you. Twin Peaks is different. A long way from the world. You've noticed that. Yes, I have. That's exactly the way we like it. But there's a, a back end to that that's kind of different, too. Maybe that's the price we pay for all the good things. What would that be? There's a sort of evil out there. Something very, very strange in these old woods. Call it what you want. Uh, a darkness, a presence takes many forms but it's been out there for as long as anyone can remember and we've always been here to fight it we men before us men before them or after we're gone a secret society why don't we take agent cooper for a little ride where to the book house yeah 
Is that the clip? Sorry, I thought there was more to that clip. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the clip. Wait, because then, then it, they just go to the bookhouse. Yeah, they go to the bookhouse, which is I n- can't believe I never realized this the first time. It's literally a house with books. It's like a <laughs> like a place where you get books. Yeah, and uh, Truman is basically revealing that they have this like vigilante, uh, extra legal, extra judicial uh, like task force. Uh, run by most of the young men in Twin, a lot of the young men in Twin Peaks, um, including James and his friend from the pilot, uh, yeah. the biker boys. Because it's this, it's this abrupt moment where Truman's telling Cooper, "Okay, you know, we protect against evil, whatever," and that kind of lines up with what Cooper's seen in his dreams and just what we've seen in the show so far. It isn't surprising. It's just, oh, okay, the characters are aware of it too, and Truman's kind of giving this monologue that balances out what cooper said and, and what what cooper said and what bobby said yeah um but then when they get there like you're saying there's this really shocking moment where they round the corner mm-hmm. and james and his buddy just have jacques renault's brother tied up and gagged it's fucked dude yeah it's I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the moment when you realize that your parents are people, but like way darker or like the moment that you realize that somebody you knew has this like secret life and you're like, yeah. oh God. And it it's not surprising, which is what's sad about it. It's like, yeah, James, of course, James is there. Like James is this kid in, in high school. He's a high school kid. You got to really like maybe the actor doesn't look like it. Um, but James and Joey are like teenagers and Truman is like our homie and Hawk is like our, our cool friend. And, and we've been like right. doing all this fun investigation stuff. And they're just tying up dudes and they're just keeping them. They're waiting for Truman and company to come by. And Cooper, God bless his, his like, uh, not ignorant soul, but his soul that like is knows what to focus on. He uh, immediately gravitates towards the, the, the free coffee in the corner. And he's like, Ooh, coffee. And they're like, we have a guy tied up. And he's like, yeah. Mm." (laughs) Yeah. It, it oddly and unfortunately makes Sheriff Truman make more sense. Right. Yeah. Because he's not just, he's not the guy that, that Albert was saying he is, where he's just some sort of yokel, you know? Um, he's not the nice, sweet man that Cooper's going to run away with one day. He's a sheriff in a small town, and it makes sense that he has some shady deals with members of the town and there's some stuff happening behind the scenes that we don't know about but that drives a lot of the activities of the police department um it's like a layer of reality that is obviously very tv-ified because they're a whole secret society with a secret name and there's a darkness in the woods and they do the little hand thing with their hand on the right cheek yeah but it also is just a more realistic idea of who this guy is and it raises some questions for us of okay what else is going on here and and the the episode like picks up the pace from here because like you said this is now the truth of truman notice that andy and lucy aren't here for example this isn't everyone this is like the the men who have had secrets to hide it's all it's all guys here um Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. And it's all these like masculine traditional kind of guys being like, well, yeah, this is what we do is we like polish our guns and we hang out in this basement. And and, and it feels it's something, it's something like uh, appealing about it, I guess. You want to think this is cool, but also like this is effed up. And he says we've been doing this yeah. for 20 years. They've just right. had this and no one questioned it because everyone who questioned who would have questioned it is working with them. So like, yeah, this is this is the system. This is how it works. It's all under it's all underneath. Um, and it, it really does call into question like how 
Truman's morals and what he actually believes in. Because later, like right next scene, he's going to Josie's house again. Every time Truman mm-hmm. goes to Josie's house, by the way, I fall asleep. <laughs> and uh, he's yeah. like, oh, my God, you're so beautiful. And did you know you're beautiful? And Catherine's like effortlessly listening in on her little speaker thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, then they they like have sex on the carpet. And it's like, that's Truman. That's our dude, Truman. And he's like <laughs> so corrupt. Yeah. He's so well, morally and, compromised. And, you know, no, no, uh, no shade to people who have sex on the carpet. I mean, you know, I do mean, your thing. Um, but. But yeah, I I mean, it starts to answer the question that you had of, or starts to respond to the statement that you were making earlier of like, Laura Palmer, her death is the fault of the systems and the norms of this particular town, this or this particular regional society even, or the American society, whatever you want to zoom it out to. Um, and one of those systems is the police department that, is inherently uh corrupt in this way Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so it makes sense that in a town full of people being duplicitous and taking things into their own hands and doing things uh the way that they want them to be done that laura palmer would meet the fate that she met um because that's just the kind of town that this is at its core yeah if anything, learning all these things about the town just makes it her murder makes sense. It's no longer scary and confusing. We haven't answered it yet, but now I'm like, yeah, of course it would happen here. Yeah. Jacques Renault is like taking people over, or Leo's gonna go pick up Jacques Renault from the border. Well, Jacques right. Renault stuff, the introduction of that character, we get more of it in the second episode, but I find it like it's the epitome of this. And that guy, when they pull the tape out of his mouth or whatever, is doing the worst like Cana- French Canadian accent is terrible. Zero out of ten. It was like at one point it sounded like he was doing a Jamaican accent yeah, or something. Yeah. What are you doing, bud? <laughs> and Jacques Renault barely has an accent also. Jacques Renault looks like Dan Schneider, by the way, if people know who Dan Schneider is. Yeah. He's just like a dude. Those actors did not communicate about <laughs> their, their upbringing as brothers. Mm-hmm. They did not meet in the middle on that. No, not in the slightest. Um, there's a There's a bunch of stuff at the end of this episode that i don't really care about yeah like we were saying the mill stuff and Catherine's listening and she had two ledgers and she took away the the bankruptcy one and truman's like this ledger looks fine he looks at it for three seconds and he goes this looks good yeah that's whatever and then dr jacoby i i think i didn't bother clipping what dr jacoby said i thought he had a pretty good monologue here too at the end actually where he's at the grave talking to cooper and he basically says you know, listen, I listened to everybody's problems and I don't care about them, yeah. but I cared about Laura. Um, that was a nice moment. Dr. Jacoby's still a, a strange dude. Um, he, he sucks a lot faster than everyone else. But what I will say is the reason he talks about that is is, is fleshed out more in the second episode. However, right. in this episode, we have a brief scene we don't even really need to touch on. But Audrey uh, has like a crawl space in uh, the Great Northern or whatever or in her house um, yeah. where she can like sneak around and hear people's conversations and she's listening in on her dad, her parents uh, talking about how like, Oh, we can't take Johnny to the funeral that it wouldn't be appropriate. He's going to make a mess. Like it's going to be such a problem and Mm -hmm. you know, all that stuff. And then she goes to the other corner and she sees Dr. Jacoby trying to coax Johnny out of his head, his headdress and like being very tender with him. Yes. And that was where I think it, it hurt that later in the episode jacoby's like i don't even care about these fucking dudes like i don't care about anyone here because he like he like taps he bumps he um 
touches foreheads with Johnny and like hugs the kid. And it's like, mm-hmm. Johnny Johnny did have a freaking father figure, dude. It was Dr. Jacoby. And Jacoby, 10 minutes later, it's like, I don't even care about this stupid weirdo. And mm-hmm. that hurt, that bums me out almost as much as Nadine, but it gets way less screen time. Yeah. Just, just the like way that people put on faces for others and for the ignorant around them. Like technically, this is the same thing as uh, Truman working with the Bookhouse Boys and not telling Andy. And it's like you want to tell me that you're Andy's friend and you want to train him and be good at being good at guns, but you're not going to tell him that you you practice guns at at midnight or whatever in the Bookhouse Boys <laughs> clubhouse. <laughs> it sucks. Like I just hate this I, this like slimy yeah. feeling of like people be lying to the the more ignorant amongst us. Yeah, I I. Th- I interpreted dr jacoby as being genuine when he was with johnny but i think you could read it either way um yeah and that's that's kind of the point right mm-hmm. is that you just don't know how to read these things um in this town so yeah well the last the last scene being hard to read is is very funny to me too uh so looking at there basically there are the uh, everyone all the people who are staying at the great northern are hanging out in the lobby dancing they're having a great time it's a fun little dance scene um and in the corner we have cooper talking to hawk a character who hasn't really had much like many lines yet michael horse underrated actor very talented very very good at his his role amazing moment in the next episode but um cooper asks him if he believes in a soul yeah and there's like this like appropriative native stuff yeah david lynch just can't resist this urge to be like the magic native american person and he they will continue to do this with hawk big time for a long time um he does have a nice moment what i like about hawk's character and i think this is mostly on the part of michael horse is he will say some like stereotypical native american crap and then immediately be like yeah but whatever like that's not how i feel because he talks about how like there's multiple soul i believe in several souls and there's a dream soul and then uh, Cooper's like, where do you believe Laura is now? And he's like, Laura's in the ground, Cooper. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the only thing I'm sure of. The rest of this is just mysticism. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know. Right. That's true. Um, but then we find that Leland is in the crowd of people dancing and just deeply uncomfortable watching Ray Wise trying to dance, regardless of the circumstance. Um, yeah. He nobody's dancing with him. He's me at uh, not at prom. I actually had I had friends by high school. Um, but he's me in my <laughs> nightmares at prom, being like, "Why won't anybody dance with me? Can anybody?" And everyone's like, "Get away from me, you gross weirdo!" Don't we know who he is? Why are we so mean? Where's the empathy here, guys? Be a little bit nice. To yeah, me. that that's what I didn't understand. His daughter was just buried, and nobody's comforting him. Like, who are these people? Did Cooper and Hawk just follow him to the bar to make sure he was okay or something? Yeah, the sad um, way that they have to walk him out and be like, all right, Leland, like, we're taking you home. And the episode ends on him going, home, home. And it's like, Leland gets a short shrift, dude. <laughs> people are such, not nice. Such a sad scene. I mean, it is kind of a rehash to a certain extent of his dancing scene in the previous episode. Oh, yeah. So I don't know that I have much more to say about it, but... I still was affected by it. Yeah. Um, but that ends up being the episode. Um, I'm curious, are there any big scenes that we missed or uh, stray notes that you wanted to discuss? Um, I just really like the way that Cooper ordered his breakfast at the beginning of the episode. And I oh, have yeah. that clip here. Oh, Trudy, two more coffees, please. Mm. Harry, Lucy, it is an absolutely beautiful morning. Short stack of griddle cakes, melted butter, maple syrup, lightly heated, slice of ham. Nothing Ugh. beats the taste sensation when maple syrup collides with ham. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And then we briefly mentioned it, but there's that scene where Cooper's talking to Leo Johnson, which is like a nothing moment as far as I remember, but he rattles off Leo's whole record. Do you have a criminal record, Leo? Nothing. You can look it up. Illegal U-turn, April 1986. Drunk and disorderly, November 1987. September 88. Aggravated assault. Charges dropped. I paid my debt to society. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yeah, right. He's got great suspenders in that scene, by the way. He does. Um, but yeah, Cooper just just being Cooper and being the best character on the show. Oh, except come for on. Lu- except for Lucy. Except thank for Lucy, you. of course. Okay, thank you, please. Yeah, Lucy number one. Come on. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's actually what I have. I Oh, uh it's speaking of Cooper uh, again, Cooper again. Uh being like way too smart for everybody. Uh when they're in the restaurant they're about to tell him about the bookhouse boys and Ed looks at Norma handing him the coffee oh, yeah. and yeah. immediately she leaves and he goes, "Big Ed, how long you been in love with Norma?" And it's like <laughs> like Cooper does not miss. He doesn't keep things to himself. And he just yeah. shoots his bullet, shoots his shot. Oh, yeah. he's so good. Too smart. And then you just get to watch Ed be like, up, 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 up. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, and I found it interesting that Ed is a little wary of Cooper. He doesn't really trust him because Cooper's not from Twin Peaks. Yeah. So we'll see how that shakes out. Foreigners. I, I have one piece of background information and then we can head into the second episode. Yeah. That works for you. It does. Um, so this is from the Twin Peaks wiki. I just love. <laughs> I just love this background info quote. It says the following. Uh, The episode was to originally feature a scene in which Cooper visits the graveyard and meets an elderly groundskeeper who recites a long speech telling Cooper that if he puts his ear to the ground, he can hear those who are buried singing due to their coffins expanding. The scene was cut due to problems casting the groundskeeper. What? (laughs) This is the most, like, any... (laughs) any mystical detail in this show where you're like what does it mean could have just been cut because they had problems casting the ground exactly exactly so don't look into anything too closely <laughs> i would say i mean like michael anderson the actor who plays the person for the uh the little man person in the dream place. sequence yeah i from another place um is there was like a lot of conflict with him and David Lynch. And that's why there's like, he's, I guess minor teeny, tiny, tiny spoiler. He's not like a huge, he doesn't come up later after a certain point in the series. Um, and it's just like, you think like, Oh, is it like some secret about the dream sequence? And it's like, no, him and David Lynch didn't like each other very much. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> so remembering that twin peaks is a real show that was actually produced. So yeah. I, um, I got the Blu-ray side of the series. I bought the, uh, what is it called? Twin Peaks, the entire mystery on Blu-ray. It's an amazing Blu-ray set. I highly recommend if people want to own this show. And uh, uh, I'll be talking about some of the special features as I discover more of them. But it has this uh, these cast photos, which are so wild. Because one, you get to watch, see David Lynch with like black hair when he's super mm-hmm. young. And that's really bananas. And two, you get to watch like characters who are supposed to be dead or supposed to be in dreams hanging out with the rest of the cast and you're like no wait <laughs> it's like seeing like freddy krueger with the mask off or whatever and you're like that's yeah. a guy that's robert england hold on <laughs> um but yeah just this this is a real show that was made it sometimes it, bo- it boggles the mind remembering that mm-hmm. um but that's what i have mr magellan hello folks this is alan if you haven't already noticed by the length of this episode we decided to separate both halves into separate releases this week We received some feedback about last week's beefy podcast link, and we decided to release both of these parts on separate days uh, to give some people time to enjoy each half. 
You'll be hearing our discussion of The One-Armed Man with our special guest this Wednesday, July 21st. And we are sorry if you were really excited to hear that discussion today. But again, we felt it would be better for more people if they had some time to just enjoy this episode and re-listen, watch the episodes with us, etc. Um, but before I close out this episode, I do want to read an email that we received a few weeks ago, actually, from good friend of the podcast, Ryan Slowinski from the Spit and Polish podcast. Ryan says, Hello! Uh, I wanted to share some of my thoughts on the pilot episode of Twin Peaks, as it's one of my favorite things in the Twin Peaks franchise. I came into watching Twin Peaks fully during university, but was familiar with Lynch and his overall style of filmmaking and telling stories. What I love about the pilot episode, and what I think made it stand out from other shows of the time, and still makes it stand out today, is how perfectly it captures the feeling of grief and loss. The ability to transmit genuine emotion through film is one of Lynch's real strengths as an artist. Twin Peaks, for example, manages to make me buy 100% into the grief of an entire town's worth of people for a girl that I haven't even met. The characters are surely what attaches most to a story, and Twin Peaks' pilot has some damn great ones to kick off a series with. But it is that sense of loss and that sense of impending dread that lured me into this narrative. I remember going through the process of trying to figure out who killed Laura Palmer during my first watch of this episode, but the moment when Bobby Briggs snapped about being the suspect really shifted my way of looking at the show. He absolutely embodied that of a frustrated teenager who feels like the system is against him. Weirdly enough, that honest reaction from Bobby endeared me to him, and like Cooper, I had a feeling that he didn't do it. Once I had that feeling, I kind of realized that the murder mystery wouldn't be the thrust of the show for me, but the complex set of emotions that the show was presenting me would be. So I would say to you both, don't be fully trapped by the mystery plot details and the quirky lines, but instead try to grapple with what any given moment in Twin Peaks is making you feel and how it has done that. Kind regards, Ryan Slowitzki. So, a fantastic email. Apologies for coming to it a little bit late, but I'm glad to talk about it. This is a really tough thing that we've been dealing with talking about Twin Peaks week to week. Manjal and I have both watched the show before, and we have an understanding of where it's going and what the momentum is, but it's still, I, I watch it and I get invested in the mystery just like I did the first time, even though I know where it's going. And I would say to people watching for the first time too, yes, definitely take Ryan's advice. This is a character show. This is a show with tone, and with vi like vibe, character, uh, individual beats and moments, it is not a show for you to solve, for you to overly theorize about, no matter what the, fan the fandom will tell you. It is not a show with 100% all the way across the board clear answers. It's a show to have fun with, and that's why I love it. It's why it's one of my favorite shows. For folks who may be new to, to chats, one of my favorite shows personally of all time is Lost. And warts and all, Lost is also a character-centric show. I talk about it so much on this podcast, it's becoming a bit of a joke. But the reason I love it is they just don't feel the urge to tell you things. They do eventually, and the, then the late era of the show is bogged down by that. But it's just about people being people. And like Ryan said in this email, Twin Peaks is about grief. It's about uh, violence. It's about like the way that, that systems uh, ju justify violence. It's very complex in its characters, and they all have so much more to say and so much more to do than what we see in even this first season. So, 
agreed with her on 100%. I kind of want to impart this message to the rest of people watching Twin Peaks for the first time. Don't come to it looking for, you know, a concrete answer or gritty, realistic murder mystery shenanigans. And appreciate the Lynch stuff, but understand this is also just a character show. Like, that's that's where Frost and Lynch work together the best, is they wrote characters really well. So, uh, I really appreciate that, Ryan. I think that's a great point. And uh, if you would like to send in emails, you can do so by heading over to chatspot at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D at gmail.com. We also have a Twitter at chatspod, where you can find updates about the show. And a community-run subreddit, which is at r slash chatspod on Reddit. We encourage people to rate us on their podcast platform of choice. If you think we're a cool show, give us five stars. Maybe consider writing a review. That would make us very happy. Good or bad reviews. And uh, we have a Patreon. That's where all of our bonus content is. A lot of the stuff we talk about and pilot and 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 think about and movies that we watch come from our Patreon. Where we have people supporting us at one, three, or five dollars a month. And if you support us at five dollars a month, you get a thank you at the end of every episode of the main show. So right now, for example, I'm going to say thank you to our current $5 patrons, Kat, Marcus, Nick, Pat, Fenden, Ryan, Six, and Stefan. Thank you for supporting Chats the Television Podcast. We also have a website, which is the center of all things chats. It's chatspod.com. And our podcast art was done by Camilla, who was on a recent episode of Peace Chats. She can be found on all social media platforms as Camillustrator. Check out her cool stuff. And that, my friends, is going to do it for this episode of Peace Chats. Damn fine podcast. We'll see you on Wednesday.